Hello and welcome to the Full of Beans podcast, hosted by myself, Hannah, a registered associate nutritionist and your favourite crazy bean. Full of Beans is on a mission to reduce eating disorder stigma and increase eating disorder awareness. Together, we will establish inspiring conversations with a range of individuals, including those with personal experience and their loved ones, as well as clinicians, researchers and charities who are all working to increase the understanding of eating disorders. Using my personal battle with atypical anorexia and body dysmorphia, as well as my Masters in Eating Disorders and Clinical Nutrition, we will together explore the experiences of like-minded individuals who are equally as passionate about sharing their stories to increase the understanding of eating disorders. Please note that this podcast discusses sensitive topics and should not be seen as a replacement for evidence-based therapy or treatment. In 1983, Christopher Gilbert suggested a link between autism and anorexia nervosa. Traits such as atypical social cognition, difficulty processing emotions, weak central coherence and cognitive rigidity can be seen in both individuals with anorexia nervosa and autism. In our episode today, we are joined by Charlie, a PhD student at Cardiff University, currently researching the link between anorexia nervosa and autism, and the impact that her research could have on clinical practice. Hello, Charlie. Hi, great to speak to you, Hannah. Oh, thank you. How are you doing today? Yeah, I'm really good, yeah. Um, enjoying the weather while it lasts. How, how are you? Is it nice where you are? Because where I am, it is so cold... Yeah, it's been a really odd day, but actually on the whole, it's been really nice. Oh, um, when the sun's out, it's been really nice, yeah, so yeah. we've been quite lucky, I think. Yeah, I just got back from a walk, and it's so windy, yeah. like, bitingly cold, like, December weather, not blooming yeah, April it's, weather. <laughs> it's so strange, yeah. I mean, yesterday was definitely the nicest, but yes. I think, yeah... I think it's going to get worse so we're just oh great taking it while we can yeah Yeah, exactly so thank you so much for joining us today I'm really excited to hear about all the research you've been doing I guess to start off did you just want to kind of explain how you got into what you're doing and what your interests are between the link between anorexia and autism yeah so I guess when it started when I kind of became aware of this link so I did my undergraduate psychology degree actually at Cardiff as well mm-hmm. um, and I did a, an undergraduate placement year so um, I spent a year working on an eating disorders um, inpatient unit right and there was a couple of things there that kind of led me to uh, you know see this link a bit more I guess was um, firstly there was a, a service user who was kind of going through the motions of being referred for an autism assessment so that was kind of the first Mm. like oh okay there's you know possibly a link there I don't know it could just be chance but yeah that was that but alongside that I was also putting together a group therapy uh, program for the ward so I was doing a bit of reading around and looking at kind of different approaches that we could take to this group therapy program we ended up going with a compassion focused approach but actually Mm. on the way to kind of on the while I was researching, I came across um, cognitive remediation therapy. And within that literature, there was a lot about this kind of link between um, autism and anorexia. And I guess like thinking about the, there seems to be this kind of over-representation of uh, autism within um, anorexic populations. Mm-hmm. So yeah, that was kind of like my first, I guess, yeah, when I first became aware of that link. 
And then after that, I um, did my dissertation on the kind of relationship between autistic traits and eating disorder symptoms within a student population. Mm -hmm. And then I became an autism support worker uh, (laughs) once I left uni and it just kind of all fitted together. And that's when I saw this PhD being advertised and it kind of piqued my interest, I guess. And yeah, it kind of just seemed to fit with everything I'd done and my interests um, in that area. And I just wanted to ask you, you mentioned, was it, did you say cognitive remediation therapy? What is that? Because I haven't heard of that before. Yeah, so it's kind of based, I guess, you know, on cognition, thoughts and that mm. thing. But it's to do with cognitive flexibility. So right. it looks at, I guess, yeah, kind of trying to improve uh, flexibility and cognition. And it's been used in kind of eating disorder populations mm. um, a little bit. It's kind of still being you know, research quite a lot. But yeah. yeah, so that's the kind of background behind it, I guess, is mm. to do with uh, flexibility. Okay, sure. yeah, that makes sense. So now I wanted to talk about your PhD and kind of what, you're, mm. what you've been working on. So I was having a look at like some statistics and stuff and I think it said something that like 20 to 30% of women with anorexia meet the criteria for autism, but then only 1% of the general population meet the criteria for autism. So obviously that you can see there, can't you, like that bigger link, I guess, in people with anorexia. So yeah. the CDEF project has two aims and one of them is looking into the potential causes and maintenance factors of anorexia in women with autism. So could you describe what you found so far through your PhD? Yeah, so I can tell you a bit about the um, study we did for to kind of particularly look at this, this research aim. Mm. There hasn't actually been like a, a huge amount of research, in the sense, especially when we started three years ago. So we kind of took this more exploratory, I guess, view and we decided to do qualitative research so we did interviews with autistic mm. women so we actually we actually interviewed autistic women um who who had an eating disorder or had had an eating disorder healthcare professionals who were working either in eating disorder services or autism services and also parents of autistic women um who had had an eating disorder so what we wanted to find out basically was kind of thinking about how their eating disorder might have developed and kind of looking at that in the context of the autism as well so we kind of had um, six overall themes with this research kind of relating to that that aim around what causes and maintains or might cause and maintain an eating disorder in autism. So our first one was about sensory sensitivities. So this kind of manifests in a couple of different ways. So when I talk about sensory sensitivities, I'm thinking about, you know, perhaps um, sensitivity to light or noise, that kind of thing. Mm. So in this sense, you know, kind of restricting their eating kind of in a way numbed these sense, uh, sensory right, sensitivities okay. down. And also, you know, thinking on the same lines, food sensory sensitivities. So being sensitive to different textures or flavours, um, obviously is quite directly related to restricting food Mm. and another way it manifested was through what's known as interoception so the kind of sensing things within the body um things like hunger and thirst and a lot of these women really really struggled with sensing when they were hungry so in a way that would kind of lead them to to restrict their eating Mm. so that was kind of the first theme and our second theme was around social interactions and relationships so we know that kind of within autism, this tends to be something that's quite difficult for a lot of autistic people. So things like making friends was quite difficult and often they are described being bullied as well. So that was quite hard to deal with. And um, <clears throat> the eating, the restricting of eating kind of helped them to deal with those issues. Right. Um, and another thing was um, to do with social problems is also around um, 
So thinking about um, like, you know, a lot of them kind of develop their eating disorder while they're at school. So skipping lunch because they didn't want to deal with being around other people. So it kind of just yeah. went hand in hand in a way. Our next theme was around self and identity. So for a lot of the autistic women, they weren't actually diagnosed with autism until they were a lot older. Mm. Um, some of them actually part kind of, you know, they'd, they'd, they'd been diagnosed with an eating disorder and then weren't diagnosed with autism until a bit later. So they always kind of felt different, but didn't really know why. Mm. Um, so that kind of feeling of not really having a sense of self and really struggling to understand why they didn't fit in or why they were feeling different from others. And this led some of the women to kind of, I guess, try and fit in a bit more and thinking, if I lose weight, then I might kind of fit in with my peers a bit more. Or um, if I was sportier, they might kind of like me more, that kind of yeah. thing. I suppose as well. Eating disorder does kind of become a personality, doesn't it? It's, it's such a strong and big part of you. I guess if people are lacking that who am I, then that eating disorder gives them something to be. Yeah, absolutely. That was something that kind of came from these interviews as well, that actually some of them might then take on that kind of anorexia identity. Yeah. Uh, that was, yeah, their kind of way of fitting in and that's you know, something they were good at. And I think some of these things that I'm talking about, probably, you know, non-autistic people might relate to as well. Um, mm. But it's just kind of, yeah, seemed to be quite one of the main focuses for these, for, for some of these women. Yeah. So our next theme now, which was to do with emotions and having difficulties with dealing with their own emotions. So it kind of related, I guess, again, to the sensory sensitivities in that by restricting their eating and kind of having this um, rigid routine around eating, it kind of numbed those other mm. um, difficult feelings, such as emo like emotions that they didn't really know how to deal with at the time. And the fifth theme was around thinking styles. So, you know, around kind of rigid thinking and needing, like, kind of having a need for a routine. That was quite yeah. quite a prominent finding that came out of these interviews. And actually another another thing that came out of the thinking styles theme was around special interests. So a lot of autistic people have what's known as a special interest. It tends to be these really rigid, intense interests, mm. which often kind of, are, you know, in a way they can be, they can be great because they provide, you know, a real sense of joy and things like that. But for some of these women, it kind of was related to eating and food and that, that kind of took over their lives in a sense and, you know, perpetuated the eating disorder even yeah. more. I suppose it's that sort of those behaviours of sort of all or nothing that is so common in eating disorders anyway. And I think in autism, like you say, that special interest is kind of the thing that they dedicate themselves to. And like you said, I'm sure sometimes <laughs> it can be really good to expression and stuff like that. But for yeah. an eating disorder to have that this is the only thing I'm interested in, the only thing that I want to do, that's yeah. quite dangerous. Yeah, 100%, yeah. And it's kind of one of those things that it's not necessarily something that can easily be changed. Like, although for, for some autistic people it might, you know, you might kind of be in different phases of special interest. You might kind of like one thing one year and then something else the next year. And that's not always the case, so it can goes on for a while. It can yeah, kind of become a real, a real issue in that sense. Mm. And then just our last theme was around a need for control and predictability. So actually having um, an eating disorder in a way helped them to cope with uncertainty because they would have these real kind of structured or rigid routines around food when everything else was kind of feeling a bit chaotic in their lives. This kind of gave them a sense of calm and a sense of, you know, I know what's happening next, I know what I'm having for dinner, I know what I'm having for lunch and that kind of thing. So, yeah, th those were kind of, that's kind of a very brief overview of the <laughs> themes. You explained it very simply, which I think was really good because I think sometimes with research people can get a bit like overwhelmed and it can be a bit too much. But uh, my question to you would be that obviously a lot of the things that you spoke about there are 
you know, classic eating disorder traits. So I suppose it's like, where do you draw, I guess, a line of, or is it, I I suppose, autism, you know, it's a spectrum, isn't it, of the, like, severity. So where do you draw that line between somebody has an eating disorder or somebody has an eating disorder and autism? Yeah, I think it is really tricky. And, you know, there's a lot of debate around um, autistic traits might be mimicked by the by being in a state of starvation. Sure. So things like rigid thinking might be something that someone who isn't autistic will still um, will still experience when mm. when they have um, an eating disorder like anorexia. So it can be quite difficult to tease out. But one thing I guess that we've you know, you, you often find is um, if you can't you need a real kind of in-depth um, history if possible so developmental history of that person you'll often see that these kind of these issues around social um, difficulties and sensory sensitivities and other things like that have kind of persisted throughout their lives yeah yeah so that's one thing that kind of differentiates the two and also it tends to persist after recovery as well so yeah um, it's more of a stable trait than something that kind of yeah can can be recovered from I guess yeah because I suppose that's sort of like starvation I mean we've spoken about this quite a lot on the podcasting that when you are in the depths of an eating disorder and you're starved you do change the way that you do things I think it's almost like a coping mechanism for survival in that characteristics do occur because of the starvation in the eating disorder but then like you say that once you then recover you might get we probably would go back to then how you were before whereas people with autism that would still remain yeah yeah absolutely and it, it's kind of in a way it comes becomes a bit of a, a vicious cycle I guess because um you know just thinking you know if we take the example of um a restricted or a rigid thinking style this is something they kind of possess anyway because of their autism and in a way that will then that might play into the development of the eating disorder um, you know, thinking about having a rigid routine um, around around food and things like that. And then we know that kind of the body is in this this state of semi-starvation, that they're going to have more rigid thinking patterns anyway. Um, and then that kind of, it just kind of reinforces itself, mm. I guess. And that's something we kind of, in this in this study that we did, we we proposed this theoretical model of what, what it might look like for an autistic person, um, different kind of ways that it might develop. And that's one of the things, this kind of reinforcing factor of it's already there and then it gets worse and it kind yeah. of just reinforces itself. Yeah. And I know that the other stuff you've been looking at is the different treatment that people with autism may require. Because like you've just said there, the symptoms or characteristics of rigid thinking or what have you they're surely going to be needed to be treated a lot differently than somebody that doesn't have autism who has an eating disorder because they're not just going to go away like you said so have you kind of you know looked into or have you got any thoughts about how the treatment would have to differ for people with autism compared to just you know somebody without have you looked into or got any thoughts about how treatment would differ for somebody with autism who was also in recovery from an eating disorder? Yeah, so we're thinking about kind of rigid thinking and how that might not, that's more of a stable thing that won't, won't mm. recover, I guess. I guess one way to think about it is actually that the rigid the rigidity can be used more of a, as a strength for the autistic person, I guess, kind of in their recovery rather than it kind of hindering recovery. So just as an example, it might be that, you know, an autistic person a particular meal plan helps them to recover. Um, and as long as this is kind of an agreed plan, it's predictable and it kind of fits their routine. Actually, for someone who's autistic, that might be really, really helpful and yeah. help them to um, recover. 
and that kind of might, might support their recovery rather than kind of be something that holds them back. So, I mean, that's not going to be the case for all autistic people because they all differ, but um, that's something that could, you know, be used rather rather than thinking of it as um, a weak, not a weakness, but like a, a hindrance in their, in their recovery. It could be something that actually can really help and be a strength in their recovery, I think. Mm. Yeah, definitely. I think I always think that about a lot of things, sort of the eating disorder traits, I guess, like the rigidity or perfectionism, things like that. Often it's not always the right thing to say, I want to change myself and I want to get rid of these characteristics because they're what's kind of keeping the eating disorder alive, but more using them to your strengths. Like you said, sticking you know, to a meal plan, that would be something that would be very difficult but then if if you're told this is the meal plan, you need to stick to it, then that would really help your recovery. And I've always seen it. I'm like very much a perfectionist, but I don't think I would have got maybe done as well in exams and stuff like that because I've got that like determination behind me. So I, I think that's kind of what it is, isn't it? It's you, like you say, using those characteristics as a strength because that in itself, yeah. making it a positive thing rather than a negative, I think that really does help, you know, on the path of recovery as well. Yeah, absolutely. Like you can think about it, I was just thinking about it for other things as well. Like I was talking about the special interests um, within autism, like although that can be um, an unhelpful coping mechanism in a way in that it can kind of lead to development of an eating disorder if it's kind of around these um you know different themes that around food or things like that but you know just thinking about the the interviews that we did one of the examples was um someone who had a real special interest in veganism and environmental issues which when she when she was really struggling was a bad thing because it it was something that restricted her eating a lot more but actually now she's kind of in recovery it's you know doing doing great things for the world and you know helping thinking about you know environmental issues and stuff like that is something that really helps mm. her and she's really passionate about so you know it can also be a really good thing yeah absolutely I, th- I think it really can when you're passionate about something you know whatever you're passionate about you really can make changes which I think you know mm. if they're positive changes can be really good so do you think in the sort of yeah. treatment process that they you might need to implement extra things or like do things to sort of accommodate for somebody with autism because I would assume that maybe the normal treatment pathway maybe wouldn't be necessarily appropriate yeah I mean I think there's a few things um like some really key things that that can really help autistic people I think firstly it's just eating disorders uh, eating disorder services just becoming more aware of this kind of overrepresentation of autism in eating disorder services and actually this is something I think is improving like you know Mm. even just thinking about when I started doing my PhD in 2018 to now you know I know that a lot more services we've kind of spoken done talks at services um, and there's been really positive feedback from those services and that's been really really useful but I think you know importantly this needs to be kind of fed across the whole the whole of the service so not just kind of psychologists but also thinking Mm. about um, psychiatrists and occupational therapists and healthcare assistants, you know, everyone should have this kind of, I feel should have like a better understanding of autism for it really to be, to make a difference. Yeah. And I think actually not just of autism, but actually autistic traits and how they might present. Because I, I mentioned earlier that so a lot of these women didn't actually have an autism diagnosis till after they'd kind of been diagnosed with an eating disorder. You know, for them, actually it wouldn't help if they couldn't, they couldn't rely on having an autism diagnosis to kind of have 
this, you know, slightly different treatment perhaps. So just kind of a, a more of an awareness of how autistic traits might present and a completely kind of different story is thinking about actually it's really difficult for a lot of women to receive a diagnosis there's kind of mm. issues around firstly receiving a diagnosis as an adult and secondly receiving a diagnosis as a woman is also um seems to be a lot more difficult um because of lots of different things like stereotypes and yeah things like that so it can be really it can be a real privilege to have a, a, a diagnosis actually in that yeah. sense and you know once once this kind of better understanding of autism and autistic traits is implemented that can then in turn help autistic not just women but autistic individuals to to be better supported you know just having that that kind of knowledge I guess about where there might need to be those differences I guess mm. yeah so I guess just thinking about we did um as part of this interview study we also looked at autistic women's eating disorder service experiences mm. so some of the things that were mentioned was thinking about different treatments that the women might have. So um, a lot of the women talked about having cognitive behavioural therapy as a treatment, which is kind of, tends to be the kind of go-to um, mm. for eating disorders. But actually a lot of these women really struggled to feel like they benefited from the CBT. Yeah, so I guess what I'm trying to say is actually with the CBT, it wasn't so accessible for these women. So it's thinking about what, what can we do to perhaps adapt these therapies that can make it more accessible for autistic people? You know, just for example, CBT for anxiety has kind of been, has been looked at and has been, what's the word, has been adapted for, for autistic people. So it's something that perhaps could be looked at within eating disorders as well. Or even like thinking what treatment approaches might be more, more appropriate for that person. Mm. So yeah, that's something that was kind of quite a prominent theme in our in our research was, I guess, and actually I think this is something that probably would be useful for anyone, whether they're autistic or not, is just having that real individualised approach. So yeah, so just kind of thinking what it will be most suitable for this person rather than thinking what does the nice guidelines say I have to do, yeah. that kind of thing. Yeah, I think you're really right there. And I don't think anybody is to blame in the slightest you know, at the end of yeah. the day, it's it's a lack of funding, it's a lack of resources. But like you said, CBT doesn't work for everybody. And it's almost like, well, if CBT doesn't work for you, then that's kind of your only option. And then I think often yeah. people then start to think, is it my fault? Is it me? You know, is it that I'm never going to get better because I can't do this treatment. When actually we know there's so many other different types of treatment, but they're just not maybe accessible. And that's where, you know, things like privilege come in because people, some people can go private and they can get better treatments and then have a better hope of recovery. Whereas for others, it's kind of CBT or, you know, it's a bit, it's really mm. difficult. It is. You're, you're absolutely right. I don't think, and also CT could be great for some people and that is, um, yeah. Exactly. Know, great, great for them you know but the fact is it's not it's not for everyone and I think it's you know yeah you're absolutely right it's to do with the lack of funding and the lack of accessible resources and you know thinking in terms of the nice guidelines it has to be evidence-based and you know it takes so long for something to become evidence-based mm. so you know there are treatments out there but they just don't have the evidence to back it up yeah um in the capacity that they need it needs to be and I suppose with the NICE guidelines as well, like it is a, it's not an individual thing. It's kind of looking at what is the best for the most people rather than a specific yeah. person, which it, it's a guideline at the end of the day. It's called the NICE guidelines. And 
you know, it, it, that can't be specific to every single person that comes along. Yeah, of course. But at the same time, everybody that has an eating disorder is going to be completely different. And so in that way, I think by having such like specific treatments that we have to have, it kind of puts everybody into the same bucket of, you know, well, you've got anorexia, so therefore you've, you've got this, so you've got that treatment, whereas it's just not that mm-hmm. simple. Yeah, absolutely. You're so right. Yeah. Um, what you were saying about CBT just reminded me so much of this quote from one of the um, one of the women that we interviewed. And I want to remember it. I think I can remember it. She said it's something along the lines of, here's the CBT workbook. And if you, you have to do the CBT workbook, and if you don't do the CBT workbook, you don't like the CBT workbook, it's you. It's not the CBT. It's you that's in the wrong. And that was the kind of feeling she got from her treatment yeah. was actually, you know, if this doesn't work for you, see that's wrong not the workbook so yeah I thought that was really interesting it's 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 a shame that that's kind of seems to be the the outcome of if you know if it doesn't work for you then nothing's gonna work I guess yeah yeah and was there anything else that when you were doing the interviews um with the women about the treatment process that you found I guess leading on from what I was saying about having an understanding and I could talk about that a bit more because you know once once there was this understanding of how autism might present in women and men and anyone, it kind of lends to itself about, you know, what can I do to to make treatment more accessible to this person? So, you know, understanding um, about different communication styles of autistic people is really helpful or to do with sensory sensitivities. So, you know, there are, such, there are really small things that can be implemented that can be can make the world a difference to an autistic person accessing treatment. So, for example, if we think about sensory sensitivities, it could be turning off a fluorescent light, you know, in hospitals where they have those horrible strip lights. (laughs) And, you know, for some autistic people, that can be really harsh and almost painful to to be, and, you know, really distracting, actually. So if they're in a, a therapy session, for example, that's something that they could kind of be focusing on, like not actually focusing on what's mm. happening. So, and it's about just asking that person, is there anything I can do to make you feel more comfortable? Can I, you know, and maybe perhaps even giving suggestions, you know, I could turn off the light, I could close the curtains or I could yeah. open the curtains, that kind of thing. You know, it's really simple things that don't cost any money, which is always yeah. helpful for the NHS. <laughs> um, and it's just, you know, those those kind of simple things or like a radio that might be on in, in the reception area, something like that. Mm. And then think about communication styles. You know, for a lot of autistic people, it can be quite difficult to understand um, things like metaphors. So it's really about talking, just being clear, I guess. And it's, it's something that probably would benefit anyone, um, yeah. you know, whether you're autistic or not. It can be helpful just to have kind of logical, clear um, instruction. And also in terms of kind of thinking processes, um, one thing that some of the autistic women suggested was having written information rather than just having it kind of verbalised to them um, so they can kind of go away and process it in their own time. So that was something that was really helpful as well. Yeah, I can imagine. I think like you said, though, that that all those things you said would actually be really good for anybody, you know, recovering from an eating disorder. Because I think having often when you go into the treatment you go into the hospital that's a really daunting we only ever really go to hospitals for bad things don't we so I think already you would probably feel quite nervous then it's such a daunting process to go to the treatment overwhelming and I think often things can be missed so just having here's what you need to do this week and this is why blah, 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 on a piece of paper I think that would actually be so helpful for yeah. anybody 
Yeah, you're so right. Yeah. I mean, I'm just thinking about when I was actually working on the eating disorders inpatient unit, just as, you know, as a, as a placement student, I didn't know where I was going. I didn't know what Mm. the kind of timetable was, what I was doing and all this. Um, and I was like, oh my God, if I was coming in for treatment here, I would feel so like nervous and so anxious about this. Um, and I'm actually meant to be like a person, (laughs) you know, that's, that's helping these people. I don't know what I'm doing. How are they meant to know, you know, where they're meant to go and stuff like this. So, you know, stuff like that is just so simple and like you said, could help anyone really. Mm. Um, but particularly people who, who might really struggle with unpredictability and communication and things like that. Yeah. And I have a question to ask. I think when, when I was personally in recovery, often, you know, the therapist would say, kind of, you can have the support from everybody else, but ultimately the person that needs to change is you. And I think, you know, from reading about autism, from what I've learned, sometimes there can be like a lack of awareness, you know, around social situations. Sometimes there's a lack of awareness of how to kind of participate in social situations or whatever. So is there sometimes that difficulty in sort of recognising the fact that somebody with autism, when they're diagnosed, is there that difficulty in recognising that they've got an eating disorder? Does that sort of happen and would that increase the difficulty in recovery? Mm. Do you know what? I'm not sure. <laughs> I don't know. I like just from what I know and like, you know, the interviews and things like that. You know, these women had a lot of insight and I think they mm. knew. Like, I don't think there was anything around that. I think, yeah, I mean, maybe like I'm just trying to think about. Um, yeah, it's not really something that came up as a, a yeah. kind of a, as anything that we, we spoke about um, within the interviews and yeah, that I've heard. So. I think that's really interesting, though, that they did have so much insight mm. into what they were doing. And maybe it yeah. would vary sort of like f- maybe through the severity of autism and stuff like that kind of was, I guess, another question to ask is, was there like a specific severity of autism when people also like had an eating disorder or did it kind of vary across the board? I think it really, again, it just, I think it does vary. Severity of autism is quite um, interesting because it's quite a controversial thing, I think, at the moment within like the autism community and the autistic community, because things like um, high functioning and low functioning um, autism is something that's kind of, I guess I think it's trying, it's dying out a bit now because it kind of has that, you know, it's about kind of high functioning and low functioning, I guess high functioning with people perhaps with like higher IQs and things like that. And then low functioning people who might have like kind of co-occurrent learned disability. Mm. But what it kind of suggests is that those who are high functioning don't need support, but actually we know mm. that they do. So there are kind of real misconceptions about this kind of high functioning, low functioning. Yeah, I think, yeah, in that sense, I'm kind of struggling to think about the severity of it because the thing is with autism, I think it's, when, when we say it's like a spectrum, it's kind of like, so let's say that you've got like you've got social communication problems and you've got rigid behaviors and you've got sensory problems. I think when autistic people think about a spectrum, it's more like some people might have more in this kind of circle of mm-hmm. communication, but others have more in sensory sensitivities and you know so it's more like it's spaced across that that kind of spectrum of different behaviors and and traits, I guess, rather than some people might have more traits than others does Mm. that make sense yeah 
Definitely. I think it's not necessarily a spectrum of kind of like, I guess, like intensity. I think often people think of it as like a line or like amplitude and it gets bigger as you go down. But I see what you're saying more in that it's kind of like, what's it called? A Venn diagram when you've got all things. And it's kind of, it's where somebody sits in that Venn diagram rather than like the magnitude of it. That's exactly right. Yeah. Um, It's... I think that's how it's trying to be conceptualized now within like kind of literature and within, Mm. um, you know, just generally thinking about autism. And I think that's a real kind of positive movement is thinking about more as as rather than this kind of linear, yeah, kind of idea of autism. I guess now you've explained that, would you say that there was a specific point on the Venn diagram that people sat in more (laughs) as we're not talking about the linear Oh, that's so interesting. It's a really interesting question, actually. And I'm not sure what the answer is, because I guess it's, yeah, because there must be something because, you know, not everyone who's autistic will have an eating disorder. So Mm -hmm. there must be something to differentiate um, autistic people who don't have an eating disorder and autistic people who do have an eating disorder Mm -hmm. or have had an eating disorder. Where that sits, I don't know. I don't know the answer to that. And actually, um, that's something we're looking at in our current study. So we have... Yeah, we have three participant groups, which are autistic women with an eating disorder, autistic women without an eating disorder, and non-autistic women with an eating disorder. Right. So, and then we're kind of kind of comparing different, um, yeah, I guess profiles, kind of looking at sensory and uh, social communication and things like that. So, mm. yeah, hopefully that will help us to understand it a bit more. <laughs> um so yeah at the moment I'm not sure but hopefully on a a few months down the line yeah we'll get you back Um, on in a few months so you can explain (laughs) what you found out next (laughs) yeah yeah no but you're right there must there there is something there that kind of will lead you know autistic person to another person not to but where that is I'm not sure yeah um but yeah yeah absolutely I think um again like on a more general scale like we need to kind of no, not need to, but I think it'd be very interesting to look at that sort of like on a population-based level of, you know, if you've got two people and they're both exposed to, you know, go to the same school, exposed to the same like influences in life, that sort of thing, why does one of them develop an eating disorder and the other doesn't? I think, you know, if you had the answer for why autistic people sometimes do then you'd be onto a winner because like I don't think we we even know it in people without autism so yeah that definitely sounds really interesting yeah like you're yeah you're right because it's gonna I mean realistically there's gonna be so many different factors that are Mm -hmm. playing into it it's not going to be kind of one specific thing but yeah perhaps untangling that a bit might help us to kind of understand that a bit more yeah Um, but yeah you're right I think even on like a kind of more general level it's still really misunderstood yeah um yeah absolutely yeah but I think you know I have been thinking recently that it's great to have all the different types of treatment for eating disorders but if we could put something in place that even prevents somebody having to even struggle I think by working out maybe the sort of factors I guess that might influence somebody to have an eating disorder not not influence as in like push them into it sort of thing but the things people are exposed to what might cause that to develop then you can start to target those even beforehand and then you know yeah. that that would be a brilliant world if we lived in that, that world be, yeah that's the kind <laughs> of ideal isn't it yeah prevention yeah I think you know early 
early detection if not prevention is just so you know so important but it's just not there yet is it and it's just screaming out for someone to do you know for that to happen but yeah um yeah that you're right that would be that would be yeah the the best way to go about it really was to kind of maybe pinpoint those those Mm. yeah those factors that are are playing a role for, for people definitely Well, thank you so much, Charlie, for coming on today. I'm really interested in all the work you're doing. um, So it's been really nice to listen to. So the final question I ask people, I've been sort of thinking how we would ask you this. But I guess (laughs) we'll kind of mix it up a little bit and say if somebody's listening today and you know they're sort of relating to a lot of what you're saying you know potentially they have autism or maybe have an eating disorder but could really resonate with what you were saying about the different characteristics what would you advise them to do now yeah I guess this is yeah like I was saying earlier you know a lot of these women that we spoke to and kind of just within the literature in general um, aren't diagnosed until a lot later in life, which can be really difficult. Um, I guess if you're if you're listening to this and kind of resonate with some of those characteristics, and you don't have an autism diagnosis, and you know so maybe that's something that's kind of playing on your mind, thinking you know, maybe I am autistic. I think it's really important to know that you know there is help available, there is support, mm-hmm. and although I've kind of said about it being quite difficult, you know it is possible and one of the things that we did get from these interviews was we spoke about kind of their autism diagnoses and a lot of the women did say receiving an autism diagnosis was the thing that really helped them it helped them to understand that their selves it helped them to understand their upbringing their kind of developmental history it helped them and it helped them to understand why they might have an eating disorder and Mm. you know what what kind why their life has kind of panned out the way it has for them i guess so there, you know, there are really, really positive things to receiving a diagnosis as well. Mm-hmm. And I'd say on the whole, you know, it, it tends to be quite a positive um, experience for a lot of people. Yeah. And yeah, and in terms of, you know, if you're struggling with an eating disorder and you are autistic, um, I think one thing I, that I'm taking away from this PhD is that the help is getting better and services are getting better at recognising um, autism within their services and that's something that I'm really optimistic for for the future and yeah and um, there's lots of resources online as well that kind of can help to um, can help services to kind of understand the link better and things like that so definitely kind of hang in there and it is getting better and yeah there, there is help out there for sure. Would you have any recommendations of sort of support that people could maybe go on the internet or something? Yeah so um the Maudsley Hospital have a um, have a pathway set up called the Peace Pathway, which is specifically for autistic people who have an eating oh, wow. disorder. We've worked with some of the uh, some of the the people who work there um, on our project, and they have a website. I think it's called like peacepathway.org or something like that. Okay. If you type in Peace Pathway, it comes up. Um, but they have resources for. Um, autistic people for carers and also for services so that's a really good resource I think yeah and that's where I would point people to go to fantastic well thank you so much for your time Charlie and good luck with the rest of your PhD thank you so much thanks for having me I thought that was fascinating to have that conversation with Charlie and I think that it's so incredible the similarities between autism and anorexia 
And I also thought it was really interesting to talk about autism. It's not linear. It is that Venn diagram of where somebody sits. And so I personally learned a lot in that episode, which I'm really grateful to Charlie for. Next week, we'll be joined by James Downs, who is a mental health advocate, and he does a lot of work for eating disorder policy. James has a great insight into what improvements need to be made in services, not only just to improve the service, but also to reach out to people that don't necessarily fit the eating disorder stereotype in order to make sure that everybody's getting the right treatment that they need. With James, we also discuss his journey with his eating disorder and some other stereotype in eating disorders like recovery and control. And actually, what if we didn't have to access services, you know, as though you're trying to access some kind of really narrow pathway over a rope, over a ravine or something, you know, like, which has many hurdles to jump over. That's literally what it feels like for a lot of people. Um, What if we offered services? What if we reached out to people? What if we had people going into different settings like gyms or going and reaching out into communities and, and screening people for eating disorders without obviously giving them ideas? If you enjoyed listening today, you won't want to miss next week's episode. So be sure to subscribe to be one of the first to hear it. Please also like, comment and share this podcast with anyone you feel that may need support at the moment. Not only those struggling with eating disorders, but also their loved ones, as this can be a very difficult time for everyone. Eating disorders are crippling illnesses and this podcast aims to motivate and inspire individuals along their path of recovery. If you are struggling with an eating disorder, charities like Beat, Seed and First Steps have great resources. Please also reach out to your local GP to see how you can gain support for your eating disorder. See you next time. Bye!